Open your Bibles, please, to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. We've been going through the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to them. And as far as we know, it may have been one of his earliest epistles that are recorded or they're kept in the New Testament. It follows the pattern of the ancient world of a letter of rebuke. He is rebuking the Galatians, not because they've left the faith, uh, not because they've become heretics or embraced heresy, but because they were turning, and they have not turned completely, but they are turning away from their relationship with Jesus Christ. And for Paul, it's all personal and relational. And as I've said before, this is key to understanding not only the book of Galatians, but all of Paul's writings, which oftentimes we tend to see as theological um, and philosophical or theoretical. And in fact, it's very, very personal. Consider what Vivian read to us today about eating. This isn't simply a doctrinal statement about food. He's talking about relationships, someone who can eat and someone who cannot eat certain foods and how they are to deal with one another. So to get them back on track, Paul in the book of Galatians tells a series of his stories of what happened before he was converted, what happened at his conversion, after his conversion. Um, and you know, he mentions that what he received in terms of the truth about Jesus Christ, he received from Jesus and not from any others, not from the apostles, um, not from any man. After his conversion, he went to Sinai for three years and then on his way back to Damascus, he stopped in Jerusalem for 15 days and met with Peter, then Damascus, and then he went back home where he was for at least 13 years. So between the time of his conversion and when he began to teach was at least 16, if not 17 years. And then he tells a story about some time later, he and Barnabas were sent by the church in Antioch, Syria, where people were first called Christians. They were sent to Jerusalem with an offering. Uh, they had been told that there was going to be a famine in Judea, in fact, all over the world, and the, for the poor Christians, those in poverty in Jerusalem, the, the believers in Antioch took up a collection and they sent it with Paul and Barnabas. They took somebody along with them, and that is Titus. Titus, who was a Christian, he was a Greek, he was not circumcised. And it is at this point, you know, the, the, the apostles don't seem to have a problem with it, but other people do. And uh, Paul talks about the fact that they would, Paul and Barnabas would not, in fact, tolerate the opposition to a man who was a Greek and not circumcised being a part of the family of God. He says that there were false brothers, you know, who had infiltrated the church. And as I mentioned last week, it's sort of ironic. You can't be a false brother. <laughs> Either you're a brother or you're not. But they claim to be part of the congregation. And in fact, one could argue that they may have embraced the gospel, but they added to it. That is to say, yes, you believe in Jesus, but you also have to keep the Mosaic law. Then there is the famous confrontation with Peter. And this is, in fact, our text for today. Um, 
If you look at verse number 11, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by the hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If, while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sins? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove I am a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. I mentioned this last week, but from verse 14, about the middle, we have the beginning of Paul speaking to Peter in quotations. And I would say that what Paul says to Peter goes from verse 14 all the way to the end of the chapter. Question is, why the public rebuke? Peter is somebody, and Paul at this point is, I mean, he's a teacher in the church in Antioch. Um, but, I mean, one could say he's, he is sort of going above his pay grade. I mean, this is Peter. This is one of the original 12. Um, why the public rebuke? Well, I would argue that public wrongdoing requires public rebuke. And certainly what Peter did was public. Before the people came up from Jerusalem, he was eating with the Gentiles, which in the Jewish way of thinking was, yeah, you don't do that. Uh, we're told in uh, Acts chapter 10, where he goes to the house of Cornelius and Peter says, you know, for Jews, we don't even go in the house of Gentiles. And now Peter is not only going into their houses, he's eating Gentile food. Um, Tom and I were talking about this last week, that you know, part of the problem that the Jews had was not simply Moses said, we can't eat that. They'd not eaten that their whole lives. And maybe some of the food that the Gentiles ate was kind of repugnant to them. Uh, Vivian read to us from Romans 14, you know, some people just can't eat certain foods. So they stick to vegetables, they can't eat meat. Well, they should not judge those who do. So anyway, Peter is there and he's having a grand old time. 
because we've had communion just now, but communion oftentimes back then was done in the context of a meal. So he's sitting down with Gentile believers. They're remembering the Lord's death, eating bread and drinking from the cup. And then suddenly these people come up from Jerusalem and Peter's like, yeah, I can't eat with you guys anymore. I can't eat with the Gentiles. I can only hang out with the Jews. Paul will not have this. It has to be dealt with. It is a public rebuke because what Peter did was public and it was wrong. In verse number five, by the way, talking about the issue with Titus, we did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. If, in fact, Paul lets this slide, then it's saying basically to the Galatian believers who are Gentiles, yeah, you guys really aren't true Christians. It is not only the content of the gospel. See, that's where we get into the theology and the doctrine. It's not simply the content, it's the shape of the doctrine, of the gospel. That is how we live our lives. And Peter is saying, Jesus is the only way of salvation. He is the way, the truth, and the life. But then by not eating with Gentiles, he's saying, it's Jesus plus keeping the law. Okay. Peter led the way, and even Barnabas, who had brought Paul from Tarsus to be a teacher in, in Antioch, even he separated himself from the Gentile believers. Imagine how they must have felt. You know, Peter's with us, Barnabas is with us, and now they're not with us. You know, what did we do wrong? Paul wants, in fact, to deal with his hypocrisy. What, you eat with Gentiles when there are no Jews around, but when the Jews show up, you can't do it anymore? Paul wants to make clear what the gospel is about. And so what we find in verses 14 to 21, Paul is addressing Peter. Peter knows what the gospel is about, but somehow he has forgotten something along the way. By the way, from verses 14 to 21, this is primarily a Jewish conversation. And the Galatians, who are Gentiles, are sort of on the sidelines, just sort of being, I don't know, in shock, in awe. Here are two of the giants of the church. And maybe Paul is not at that point, but certainly Peter. And Paul is taking him down and saying, what you're doing is wrong. So he's a Jew, okay? And Peter is the apostle to the Jew. Barnabas is a Jew. We're told he's from Cyprus. And Barnabas is actually a nickname that the church, that the, the apostles gave him. It means a son of encouragement. His real name is Joseph. But then there's a third group of Jews, certain men from Jerusalem. And who are these men? Well, in verse number 12, uh, Paul says, before certain men came from James, then what does this mean? We'll get to this in a minute. But we need to consider what's going on in the church at that point. You know, one of the things that you do when you do history is you look back and somehow you compress time. You don't realize that things take, a time, take time to develop. There were some Jews early in the church who said that Gentiles, they could become Christians. That's a major thing, by the way. That's a major step to say that Jesus came not simply for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. 
they said, yes, they can be Christians, but they have to be circumcised and they have to keep the law. This is such a big issue that we have a council in Jerusalem. This is at least Paul's third visit to Jerusalem to deal with uh, the issue. Acts 15 talks about this, and it opens with these words. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. In other words, they're saying, yeah, you're not really a Christian. You're not saved if you haven't been circumcised. By the way, just parenthetical, uh, circumcision is not something that Moses commanded. It is something that God gave to Abraham centuries before. Okay, so this isn't simply Mosaic law. This is the sign of the covenant. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute with them and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. And then we're told what he said there. After much discussion, I'm sorry, when they finished, James spoke up. And the result is that the council in Jerusalem decided we are going to send a letter out to the Gentile congregations. Galatians, okay? Um, And this is what they wrote. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, where Paul and Barnabas had been, and Cilicia, where Paul is from. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with, with our dear friends Barnabas and, Saul and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by the word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You would do well, you will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. Now I, I do all this to say how does the letter open? We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you. I take it from this, that when Paul says certain men came from Jerusalem, from James, I think they were saying, yeah, James sent us, when in fact James had not sent them at all. They might have identified with James, were part of the church that James is in charge of in Jerusalem, but James had not sent them but it's name dropping basically you know we're from the church in Jerusalem and we are uh, either say directly James sent us or we are part of that congregation Paul doesn't care (laughs) he doesn't care you may remember earlier uh, in chapter 1 at the very beginning 
But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you, let him be eternally condemned. You come from James? I don't care. If you're preaching something different than Jesus is the Messiah and our Savior, yeah, you, you will be condemned. May you be condemned. Um, and so Paul writes what we find in verses 14 to 21, that even though the argument is primarily about Jewish customs, if you wish, the passage is about Christian identity, which is shared by both Jews and Gentiles. There isn't like, oh, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. We are all one in Christ. So Paul writes to them, and he tells his story of how he rebuked Peter, the great Peter. You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile. That is, you eat with Gentiles and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? It's interesting, this passage, he starts out with the second person, you, and then he switches to first person, we. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sins, we're not pagans. I'm like you, Peter. I'm a Jew. We too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ. While we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners. Paul basically is laying out the gospel to Peter. One could say, Peter would say to Paul, Paul, I know this stuff. And Paul's like, if you do, then why are you doing what you're doing? Why will you not associate with Gentile believers? In verse number 17, he says, if while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, how does that mean? Does that mean that Christ promotes sins? Absolutely not. By seeking to have a seat at the table with God's people, table fellowship, eating with brothers and sisters. One does so believing that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Savior. One also acknowledges that one is a sinner and in need of a Messiah, of a Savior. You cannot be a part of the family of God on your own. You are a sinner. You put your faith in Christ and you become a part of God's family. By the way, we hear this as much with John the baptizer. When he preached, what did John preach? He preached baptism for the repentance, showing repentance of sins. You're like, so what's the big deal? Well, traditionally, and even today among the Jews, if someone converts to Judaism, in order to to go from being a Gentile to being a part of the Jewish community, one must be baptized. Well, if you're a Jew, why would you be baptized? Well, because John is saying, you're just like Gentiles. You're outside the family. You need to be baptized. You need to repent of your sins and be brought to faith in Christ. And Paul is basically saying the same thing. Yes, we're Jews. We have the law. We don't keep the law. We're sinners. And we need salvation that comes through Jesus Christ himself. But this brings up a a really important point. We have the Old Testament law. So if all that is necessary is to put your faith in Jesus as your savior, 
does that mean that Jesus is calling for you to break the law? By the way, John tells us in his first epistle, everyone who breaks the law, in fact, everyone who sins breaks the law. That sin, in fact, is lawlessness. So, okay. Paul, let me see if I got this straight. I put my faith in Jesus. I don't have to be circumcised. I don't have to keep the dietary laws. I don't have to do all these things. So now that I'm a Christian, I can break the law. So Jesus is calling on me to break the law. And what does he say in verse number 17? Does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Sin is breaking the law. Absolutely not. The law was something that was given to Israel that they might be the light for the world. They failed to do that. Jesus comes in. He is the light of the world. And we are to put our faith in him. Then we come to verses 18 through 21. And we need to take note of something that's quite subtle. If we don't pay attention. It starts out in verse 14. You are a Jew. You know, he's speaking to Peter. But then he says, we are Jews. Okay, we believe in Jesus. In verse 18, he shifts to I. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. It's one of those things where you're like, Paul, what are you talking about? What, what do you mean? What did he destroy and what would he be rebuilding? The thing that he... Um, Destroyed, actually, God destroyed it, is the wall between Jews and Gentiles. Um, again, Tom mentioned this, we were talking after the service last week, how when you read the prophets, like Jeremiah, you know, there was this criticism, you have in fact sort of gone into the Gentile population, you have assimilated Gentile customs, and you need to be separate. You know, Come out, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. And now you're supposed to hang out with these people? Well, in Ephesians, Paul is quite clear about this. Let me read to you. This is Ephesians 2. We know the earlier verses, it is by faith that you are saved through grace, the gift of God. He goes, Therefore remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves a circumcision, that is, done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at the time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. So it is because of what Jesus has done that we no longer have Jew and Gentile. What we have basically are sinners who must put their faith in Christ and they become a part of the family of God. How did he destroy the wall of hostility? Still in Ephesians 2 by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. 
and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Jesus came basically to bring us together, Jew and Gentile. The wall has been destroyed. And then Paul says, well, wait a minute. Am I now going to put up a wall between Jew and Gentile? The wall that was destroyed between the two? Now I'm going to put it up? Of course not. Of course not. But now Paul returns to the issue of the conversation. 18, verse 18 might almost be parenthetical to a certain degree. But verse number 19. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. In Acts chapter 9 we have the first account of Paul's conversion. Uh, Luke records Paul's conversion three different times in the book of Acts. The first is the most complete. He and other Jews from Jerusalem are on their way to Damascus. They are going to arrest and imprison believers in Jesus, Jews, who have put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah. He has letters, arrest warrants, if you wish. And while he is on the way, uh, a bright light comes and he is knocked from his horse. He is, he's made blind. And it is the Lord who speaks to him and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul asks, who are you, Lord? A very striking question. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And so Paul is led by the men with him because they weren't struck blind. He was. And there for three days and three nights, he is blind. But God sends a Christian believer, a Jew, Ananias, to him. God tells Ananias, go see Saul. He's like, Lord, this is the guy who wants to arrest us, who wants to kill us. He's like, no, this, he's a chosen vessel. He's going to go to the Gentiles. Here's a man who was a fanatic for the law, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, as he tells the Philippians. And now he has become a child of God. God has invaded his life. It is through the law that he died to the law. His adherence to the law is what, in fact, what brought him into the confrontation with the resurrected Jesus. He came to realize, I think, in those three, night, or those three days of blindness, that self-commendation was not the way. I keep the law perfectly, yet that's, that's not good enough. And that being separate from the Gentiles was not the answer as well. The answer was somewhere else, so that I might live for God. It's not the law, it's not the Gentiles, it is living for God. What does that mean and how has that worked out? Well, then we come to the famous verse, verse number 20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul describes earlier what it means to be a Christian. But if we're not careful, we might think, oh, this is... This is the unique thing for Paul. It is a private, personal experience. Um, 
And that really wouldn't solve the issue at all for Peter, the other Jews, or for us, for that matter. The experience is not the issue. The issue is, what is your identity? You see, for a Jew who believes that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Savior, he will save his people from their sins, one must give up the old identity to say, I'm a Jew who keeps the law. Well, if that's what you're going to cling to, then you cannot hold on to Christ. Either Jesus is your Savior, or you are your own Savior by keeping the law. You can't do both. So Paul dies with Christ. He dies to that old person that he was. And now he has new life, a new identity. He no longer lives, but Christ lives in him. The Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, was faithful even to death. And he has brought his people out of the old identity into the new identity, those who put their faith in him. I would remind you that we have the shift from we to I. And here Paul is speaking of his own personal experience. But I want to be careful. It's not an individualistic statement. Like this is true for me and me alone. He's telling his story to Peter and to the Galatians by extension in writing this letter. But it isn't just for him. It is for everyone. Those who were pagans, they give up that identity and they become children of God. And those who are Jew who hold on to the law, they have to give that up if they are to become the people of God. There are three parts to this verse, I think three different themes that go through this. The first is death. Um, In verses 19 and 20, Paul makes similar assertions. I died to the law, verse 19. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. These statements are similar, but they aren't identical. They all point to the same reality that previous identities are irrelevant. Really? You're a Jew? That means nothing. If you're going to put your faith in Jesus as your Savior, then whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you keep the law or you're a pagan, it really doesn't matter. That identity is gone. This is what Paul is saying to Peter. Peter, you're here in Antioch. This is a Gentile city. Many of the believers here are Gentiles. Who they were does not matter. Who you were does not matter because we are now in Christ. So the end of his identity is found in the expression, I died, I have been crucified, I no longer live. That is, that isn't who I am anymore. Now, for those, I think, who were raised in Christian homes, oftentimes their identity is misplaced in that I was raised in a Christian home. That's nice. Better than being raised in a pagan home. But the reality is, it isn't being raised in a Christian home that makes you a part of the family of God. It is putting your faith in Jesus. So first of all, there is death. Then secondly, there is union. Christ lives in me, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. You might say, well, wait a minute, isn't, isn't Paul contradicting himself? He says, I died, I've been crucified, I no longer live, and now he says, the life I live, I live by faith. Well, the first part is death. Death is required before there is, in fact, new life. 
You had the old life, you must die to that, and now there is the new life. So he isn't contradicting himself. It's not the death of one's personality, by the way. Um, and perhaps this gets tricky. Where What are the things that I died to? What are the things that I have to give up? And a lot of people view Christianity or becoming a Christian in that way. Oh, you have to give up certain things. No, 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 no. I think that is individual. Yeah, that's different for everyone. What you have to give up is your identity as this is what will get me into the family of God. This is what makes me a Christian or a good person or is my ticket to heaven. And Paul saying, no, the old person is dead. Okay, Now there is life. But it isn't simply, oh, I'm living on my own. We are living in union with Christ. We are united with Jesus the Messiah. Paul talks about this in other writings. In Romans chapter 6, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That is to say, as one goes into the water, it it demonstrates, it is uh, a metaphor, that we die to the old person. We go and we die with Christ. And when a person comes out of the water, they are in fact a new person. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. Those who belong to the Messiah are in Christ. They are in the Messiah. What is true of them is true of What is true of him is true of them as well. Uh, Romans 8. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are in Christ. The life that we have is the life of Christ in us. Okay, we haven't just sort of slid from one category to another. This is who we were. We died to that. And now we are in fact in Christ. two aspects to this. In one sense, a Christian is incorporated into Christ, the experiences of his work and his ministry. On the other hand, we become the vehicle through which Christ is revealed to the world. The church is, in fact, the embodiment of Christ. We are Christ to the world. Paul will flesh this out later as we go through this letter. But the key component is the gospel. Without it, the gospel is not the gospel. Either he is the Christ, either he is the Savior, either we have new life in him, or we don't. You can't mix, okay? You can't say, well, I used to be this, and I still am, and I'm in Christ. I keep the law, and I'm also a believer in Jesus. And Paul is telling Peter that isn't the way that it works. When we get to chapter 4, Spoiler alert, we'll go ahead. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. 
we are redeemed, we are adopted, we become the children of God. In chapter 3, he will say, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. To have union with Christ is the means by which we are brought into the new creation. We are a new creation we used to be slaves to sin, and now we are the children of God. Paul's laying the groundwork for what's going to come in chapters 3, 4, and 5. Okay. There's one more thing before we move on. If we are united with Christ, we are in Christ. If we're united with him. Think about it. This means we are also united with one another that we are all in Christ. And Peter, what you're doing is saying, yeah, we're not all one in Christ. You're saying, the Gentiles are, yeah, they might be in Christ, but the Jews are over here. Uh, And Paul's like, no. If we have union with Christ, then we are united with each other. I think the church over the centuries has really lost sight of that in which you have brothers and sisters fighting each other, failing to recognize that, in fact, they are one in Christ. There's a third thing here. And one might think that Paul's just sort of throwing this in. It sort of sounds nice. The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't think he put it in for this reason. Um, But, you know, at the moment, we might feel like this is like a full-on theological statement. That verse number 20 is like the doctrinal statement of this chapter. Um, But remember that it's all about a relational being in Christ. Okay. So what is Paul doing here? Well, I would argue he is defining what love is what it looks like, it is the giving of oneself. He doesn't just throw it in because this sounds really religious or this sounds really theological, uh, or maybe it sort of gives you the fuzzy feeling. Uh, No, he is saying, in fact, that Jesus Christ loved us and gave himself for us. The death of Jesus is not merely some type of transactional event. God's unhappy with us. We sang that in the hymn, God's righteous frown. God's unhappy with us. And so Christ laid aside his crown for my soul. So Jesus said, I will go and I will die in their place. And so God's like, okay. So they basically made a deal that that's how it's going to work. And Paul's like, no, that's not what's happening here. What happened, in fact, was driven by love. Christ gave himself that we might have life. And he did this because of love. By the way, Paul has already mentioned this. This is one of the problems of going verse by verse. This is our fifth Sunday in the book of Galatians, so we may have already forgotten what was in the first sermon. Um, If you look at chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, 
grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. It is this self-giving, this is what love is, the giving of oneself, that made our salvation possible. Because he gave himself, we are united with him, we are the sons of God, we have the Spirit of God within us. There's something else, although it's not mentioned here, it will be mentioned in chapter 5. If Christ gave himself for us in love, if he gave us a new identity because of his love, if he united himself with us because of his love, then should we not be marked by that same love? If that is what Christ did for us, is it not what we should do for one another? Paul is saying to Peter, Jesus loved you and gave himself for you. How can you turn your back on your Gentile brothers? The love of the Son of God is the very grace of God himself. And if you look at the last verse here in chapter 2, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. If it's about the law, it's not about love. And Christ died for nothing. That's it in a nutshell. But before he gets to verse number 21, he has to do all the verses before that to lay the groundwork to say to Peter, Peter, what you are doing is wrong. You're a hypocrite and you are denying the reality of the gospel. You need to make up your mind, Peter. You were with Jesus for three years. The Holy Spirit came on you on the day of Pentecost. You've been preaching. You've been preaching the gospel. You need to make up your mind. What is your identity? Are you a follower of Jesus, the Messiah? Are you a Jew who keeps the law? The death and resurrection of Jesus brought us out of darkness into light. Do you believe that, Peter? Are you going to act that way? Jesus came and destroyed the division between Gentiles and Jews to bring them all into his family. Peter, do you believe that? Do you believe in the grace of God? Do you believe in the love of Jesus? In verse number 17, Paul talks about being justified. And what does that mean? Well, when we get to chapter 3, we will look at that more. But, um, but I'll just say this at this point. In other writings of Paul, he makes it very clear that to be justified is to be made right in the sight of God. You're given the status of being right. And for many people, it is a legal term to be justified. You're guilty, you are in debt, and you go before the judge, and you are exonerated. But as I said last Sunday, Paul's not in a courtroom. He's at the dinner table, okay? He's eating with Gentiles, and Peter's walking away from the dinner table. Uh, Yeah. To be justified means to be made right with God and to be united with Christ in love with your brothers and sisters, no matter who they were before.
One does not gain forgiveness of sins by keeping the law, but by God's grace. And Paul says to Peter, you know this. You know that we are, a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Peter, you should know better. One more thing. When we get to chapter 5, we will hear the following. Serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. And then a few verses later, perhaps more familiar, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It begins with love. And what is love? Look at Jesus. It is the giving of oneself. He gave himself for us. By the way, Paul will bring this up with the Corinthians for an entirely different reason. Here the issue with Peter and them is, yeah, we're Jews and you're Gentiles and we can't, we can't eat together. Well, with the Corinthians it is, yeah, some of us know better than the rest of you, so we can't have table fellowship with you. Um, the Corinthians tell Paul in their letter to him, we know that we all possess knowledge. And Paul says in response, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. It's about love and not knowledge. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know, but the man who loves God is known by God. The key is love. And it's not just a tack on at the end of verse number 20. It is, there is death, there is union, and it is because of the love of Christ. Something that apparently Peter is lacking, is lacking in the situation in Antioch. When the brothers come up from Jerusalem, somebody turns off the love switch and the giving of oneself is, is gone. So we die to who we were. We gain a new identity in Christ, which is marked by love, not only in Christ, but with one another. If not, as he says at the end of chapter 2, Christ died for nothing. It's an absolute waste. Last question. Who won this battle between Paul and Peter? The fact that Paul doesn't say, I won, speaks volumes. You see, for him, it's not a question of winning the argument. I'm on the right, you're in the wrong. No. It's a matter of what is the gospel. Is the gospel that we were in darkness, Christ gave himself for us, because he loved us, and now if we put our faith in him, we are brought into light. That's the gospel. It's not a question of who won this argument. It is the gospel that Paul is fighting for, both in its content, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, but also in its shape, that the church is to be marked by self-giving to one another, that we recognize that we are one in Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, in telling his story, Paul reveals 
deep truths, things that we may easily forget. That in coming to faith in Christ, we die to who we were, any sense of self-reliance, that somehow we're good enough or we were raised in a good family, we've gone to church. No, we die to those things and instead we become a new person by putting our faith in Christ. And we are united with him, which means we're united with one another. And all of this is because of his love, his self-giving, which is to mark our lives as well. Sadly, I don't know that your church is known for its love. May we hear the words of Paul and recognize the self-giving that we find in our Savior that brought us into union with him and to with, with one another. And may we have that love as well and be self-giving to our brothers and sisters and all those around us. We thank you that the Lord Jesus came and gave his life, that we might have life. Open our eyes, open our hearts. Drill down deep into our minds and our souls to recognize the reality of the wonder of Christ's love that has given us new life. Thank you for bringing us together. We pray for Lonnie, who's not doing well as a result of her chemo. Strengthen her, we pray. Restore her strength. Stand by her and may she have a sense of your presence with her as she goes through this difficult time. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.